Uh, welcome back from lunch for the uh, afternoon session. This is dermatology. If you're here to learn how to make an omelet, that's down the hall to the right with Denny's. Okay. Uh, don't forget to sign in, you know, morning and afternoon uh, for your CME. And I have got the privilege of introducing Dr. Heidi Jacoby. She is a graduate of the Baylor College of Medicine, trained in dermatology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. Masters of Clinical Science with Distinction, the University of Texas Southwestern Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. She is currently the Director of Phototherapy at UT Southwestern Dermatology Clinic and the Principal Investigator for the UT Southwestern's Morphia Registry. Please help welcome Dr. Heidi Jacoby. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the invitation very much. So <clears throat> based on an unofficial poll of the table I sat at with lunch, I was told that uh, perhaps more emphasis on lupus and dermatomyositis and scleroderma, and then we'll go a bit briefly into uh, cutaneous manifestations of things like thyroid disease and liver disease. So. Uh, basically, I have no disclosures. Unfortunately, the diseases I work in, uh, pharmaceutical companies aren't really interested in, so I have nothing to disclose, which I'd like to change at some point. <clears throat> the learning objectives for today are twofold. Uh, one is to uh, identify cutaneous manifestations of common systemic disorders, things like diabetes, and we'll actually be spending a little less time on that. And then also talking about cutaneous manifestations of rare disorders that commonly present in the skin. And that's the general rubric under which lupus and dermatomyositis and scleroderma reside, at least in my mind. So uh, briefly, we'll just start off with uh, the first part of the talk, skin signs of diabetes. And of course, as you all know, diabetes is really an epidemic in this country, especially uh, that associated with obesity. And so I anticipate that we'll be seeing more and more of this as time moves forward. But the basic classic manifestations in the skin of diabetes include these that are listed here. Uh, the area on the left are the most common that you would see, and then these on the right are definitively associated but less common. So, oops, wrong button, sorry. Okay, so this is a good example of diabetic dermopathy, and uh, this is something that I think if you start to look for it, you'll see it very commonly, but oftentimes it goes uh, unremarked upon by patients as well as uh, when you look at them, you just kind of say, oh yeah, they've got something funky on their legs. But diabetic dermopathy is characterized by these uh, papules and plaques predominantly below the knees, and they oftentimes have erythema as well as hyperpigmentation associated with it. They aren't very symptomatic for patients, so more often than not, they'll just come in, you know, asking about what's going on with their legs, or you might notice it on a skin examination. Uh, and oftentimes what you'll find is if you ask the patient, they have a long-standing history of diabetes. Certainly if you see lesions like this in someone who does not know they have diabetes, if they they have other risk factors, it would certainly be worthwhile to check. Unfortunately, this is very recalcitrant to treatment and might improve some with better glycemic control, but otherwise they're pretty fixed. 
Acanthosis nigricans and insulin resistance. Uh, Acanthosis nigricans, as you probably know, is a velvety papillomatous brown plaque, usually in the intertriginous areas. And it is most commonly a marker of insulin resistance. Um, so the most common cause is obesity, and of course, uh, commonly accompanying that is diabetes. Also, very rarely, but uh, reported in the literature are autoimmune disorders, which actually uh, develop autoantibodies that drive insulin resistance, which is seen in lupus, uh, as well as uh, malignancy. And here's an example of acanthosis nigricans, and you can see here this is a, an individual's uh, I think axilla, and what you see is this uh, hyperpigmented plaque and this velvety texture to it, as well as what look to be skin tags, but in the setting overlying acanthosis nigricans, they're actually pseudo skin tags that you can commonly see with this. And you would also expect to see this around the neck, uh, in the axilla, and in the groin folds. This is Necrobiosis lipoidica, uh, formerly called Necrobiosis lipoidica diabeticorum. And as you can see, uh, these are very distinctive plaques. They occur underneath the knees almost always. They've been reported in the upper extremities, but they're usually more in the distal aspects of the leg over the anterior tibia. And they have this distinctive red-brown color to them. And if you look at them closely, what you'll see is at the center especially, they are yellow, and then you actually see uh, telangiectasias as well as atrophy at the center of these. And they can occasionally ulcerate as well. And uh, this is a very difficult to treat disorder. You can try topical steroids and intralesional steroids, and a large number of modalities have been reported, but unfortunately, uh, none are terribly effective, nor does it really respond terribly well to control of blood sugars. Probably the rarest manifestation that you might run across very occasionally, and, and I see a fair amount because of my interest in sclerosing skin disorders, is a, a disorder called scleroedema diabeticorum. And this comes up because these patients oftentimes when people first see them wonder, oh, could this person have scleroderma or some other sclerosing skin condition? But the manifestations of this are absolutely pathognomonic. What you get is thickening and hardening of the skin, and it begins usually here in the nape of the neck. Oftentimes, early on, it's erythematous, and if we had a close-up, you would actually see an orange peel-like texture called poda orange, uh, and it will come down over the shoulder blades of the back and might come up to the proximal arms to a certain extent. And what's distinctive about this is its distribution limited to this area, and occasionally you'll see it spread down the arms and back, which is a big contradistinction to scleroderma, which should begin in the hands and move proximally, or morphia, which would begin uh, in more plaque-type stages usually. There are two other scenarios where you see this. One is post-streptococcal infection and also malignancy associated with usually monoclonal gammopathies. But the most common association is diabetes. Again, these usually are people with long-standing diabetes. Uh, it's something we don't encounter all too uh, commonly, but we do see it a lot at the VA. I think another thing to be aware of is cutaneous signs of thyroid disease. And actually, if you're clued into these, you can pick these patients up in clinic. So we'll begin with hyperthyroidism, uh, and specifically Graves' disease, which uh, is something that has these uh, 
three very specific findings, the, the eye changes, the pretibial myxedema, and then uh, the nail changes, thyroid acropaki. And the most important thing about this is these patients oftentimes have been treated for their Graves' disease, and they are euthyroid. And so treatment uh, does not affect the development of this at all. And these are examples. So what you can see here is the distinctive finding is this lag between the cornea and the upper eyelids. So you can actually see uh, the sclera here. So first thing, when you walk into a room and you see this, this should come to mind. Uh, this is the example of the acropaki, which you can see looks very much like clubbing with loss of Levibond's angle in the nails. And then finally, pretibial myxedema. This is someone's leg. Uh, right here and down here is the foot and what you can see this is actually a little bit similar to the prior picture of scleroedema. We have thickening, hardening and induration of the skin, almost this pebbly orange peel like texture and uh, a lot of uh, erythema at least initially. If this goes on it can actually become very verrucous and you get those pictures that you see of advanced disease here with this almost warty looking leg. However early on this is very much what it looks like. So what can you do for these patients? Unfortunately, the eye manifestations are difficult to fix, as is this. Uh, I have had some luck with compression and high-potency uh, topical steroids for these manifestations in the leg, and we did treat one patient with UVA1, which, which might have improved her legs, although it's difficult to know with an N of 1. And here's just another picture, I think, of the very distinctive lid lag uh, that these patients have. So in addition to that, patients who are hyperthyroid generally have very warm, moist skin. They flush. They have palmar erythema. And there's a couple of things that give you palmar erythema. This, liver disease and pregnancy are probably the top three, and excessive sweating. And they tend to be very hyped up and very active and mobile. So you kind of get a sense of someone who, who's in motion uh, with these patients. Cutaneous hypothyroidism is very different than hyperthyroidism. And actually, um, all of us, we were talking about this actually last week, coincidentally, all of us have picked up uh, patients who are hypothyroid in clinic. And one of the big things is they come in and they are just are slow and they kind of have this blank stare, you know, almost like the lights are on, but no one's really home. And they tend to talk very slow. And uh, the scenario where I've seen it, they've come in itchy and they're just like, I'm itchy. And that is a manifestation of, of the hypothyroidism. Uh, the worst form of it is actually generalized myxedema. Uh, and then you can also get xerosis, cold pale skin, keratinemia, so turning kind of an orange color, dull coarse hair, and the loss of the lateral third of the eyebrows. And here's kind of your classic picture that exemplifies this. You can see here this patient has lost the lateral third of her eyebrows. Uh, her hair is dull, and she has kind of this pallid complexion. Uh, but I think the most common place to think about this is a person who's itchy. Uh, so you want to definitely ask questions about other symptoms of hypothyroidism in this scenario and look for these other signs. 
So also, altered lipid metabolism is uh, something you can pick up in the skin. Uh, and this predominantly takes the form of xanthomas, which are a localized infiltrative lipid containing macrophages in the skin and or tendons or subcutaneous tissue. And when these occur, they are a marker of altered lipid metabolism. And that can be either the acquired type, the most common we see circulating hypertriglyceridemia or hypercholesterolemia, or more rarely, and when you see the onset very early on in childhood or in teenage years, <clears throat> the genetic uh, tendencies towards hyperlipidemia are also a big culprit for these. So there's actually different types of xanthomas that actually are markers for different underlying lipid disorders. But when you think of uh, lipids in the skin, they're always yellow. So if you start seeing subcutaneous or dermal papules or nodules that are yellow, that's when you start thinking lipid in the skin. So hopefully the color will, will be a bit apparent on these slides. So these are tendinous xanthomas, and these are associated predominantly with the genetic disorders predisposing to very high levels of hypercholesterolemia and consequently morbidity and mortality related to that. But you can see here this thickening of the tendon, uh, and these are deeper because they're on the tendon, so they're not quite as yellow. You can also see these on on the Achilles uh, heel and other tendons in the body. These are probably the ones that you can uh, see uh, frequently. These are in the realm of planar xanthomas. The most common variant that you'll run across is xanthelasma with these, uh, these yellow papules typically of the upper eyelids. And the most uh, common underlying disorder here is actually not genetic, but an acquired hypercholesterolemia in about 50% of these patients. Uh, importantly, if these become incredibly severe or ulcerate, there's a rare disorder called necrobiotic xanthogranuloma uh, that can present with a similar manifestation, but again, much more severe and, and sometimes ulcerative. This is a tuberous xanthoma. These occur over elbows, knees, and buttocks. And these are associated with usually genetic disorders that give you a mixed picture of hypercholesterolemia and or usually hypertriglyceridemia. And I think you can appreciate here, these papules have coalesced to make a plaque, but you can see here, if you look closely, they have that yellowish color and they're soft, and that clues us into lipid. The other thing that can look yellow in the skin is calcium, but in contrast, that's stone hard. And this is the entity that you're most likely to run across. I've seen this present with patients who come in and are, have been treated for folliculitis. Uh, and I've had patients come in with this with a rash uh, that just won't go away. And these are eruptive xanthomas. And this is usually where you see them. They occur probably on the lower back, buttocks, and thighs. And I think that's if you just glance at them why they're so often diagnosed as uh, folliculitis. But if you look at them closely, you see their little dermal papules, and they tend to have that central yellow hue. Now, eruptive xanthomas are very specific to hypertriglyceridemia. So the situation where I've seen this most commonly is actually people who have undiagnosed diabetes or very poorly controlled diabetes, because as their diabetes is poorly controlled, their triglycerides tend to become very high. These usually are reflective of triglycerides well above 500 and usually well above 700. So an important thing to look for. Uh, and so a pustule is, is not always a pustule. And I think sometimes these are yellow in the middle, which makes it even more confusing. 
So hepatic disease in the skin, uh, really liver disease tends to have multiple manifestations in the skin, and most people who have advanced liver disease tend to have issues with their skin. And this was really driven home to me when I, I did a study with one of our hepatologists at Southwestern looking at patients with primary biliary cirrhosis, and it really opened my eyes because they were predominantly middle-aged women, and their history almost always was that they had started itching. Now, obviously, it's a rare disorder, but I think, you know, a middle-aged woman with with intractable itching, you need to think of, of liver disease and especially primary biliary cirrhosis. So obviously you get the obvious, you get the jaundice, uh, but in addition to that, itching, which is usually associated with uh, impaired uh, bile uh, circulation, uh, and it's thought to be also caused even by subclinical impaired bile circulation, so even in the absence of hyperbilirubinemia. They also have a, a, a change in their estrogen metabolism, so they tend to have gynecomastia and loss of secondary male hair growth, and accompanying that gonadal atrophy. Uh, you can get xanthelasma, uh, parotid swelling, dupatrains contractures of the hands, and then like uh, the spider angiomas are particularly good to look for in Palmer erythema and then Terry's nails. And this is an example of Terry's nails, and the way I remember this when I took the boards is Terry's tavern goes along with the liver disease. But what you can see here is this, this change, this whitening of the proximal, approximately two-thirds of the nail, and then this red strip here. Uh, and this usually has to do with liver disease and hypoalbuminemia. And here's a spider angioma, which can be really helpful uh, in finding these patients and Palmer erythema, which, uh, as you might recall, you can also see with hyperthyroidism and pregnancy, uh, but this is probably related to the uh, alteration in the, uh, in the estrogen metabolism. The other thing is that people with secondary lesions, no primary skin lesions like nodularis and lichen simplex chronicus, can have underlying reasons that drive their itching. So, Remember, people with perigo, it might very well be that they have an underlying cause for their itching that's causing them to itch and scratch and pick, and liver disease is certainly one of them. Another less common manifestation, but one that if you uh, work in a veteran population is, is not all that uncommon, is porphyria cutanea tarda. Uh, and you see the classic features of this disease here. Uh, this can occur in patients who have any type of liver disease, whether it be alcohol, hepatitis, HIV-related, uh, estrogens, et cetera. But what you see here is hypertrichosis. So these patients frequently will give a history of having to shave higher and higher in the cheek if they're men. Women can also get this. They describe skin, skin fragility, you know, I can't put my hands in my jeans pockets because the skin comes off. And they have variable degrees of blistering, which then leave behind uh, these little uh, uh, erosions and such that are crusted, which eventually heal with milia and scarring. And this is most prominent in sun-exposed sites. And here you see a close-up again. You see here, the, these are the remnants of the blisters. Here are the milia, which we know means it's a sub-epidermal uh, blistering process, and some scarring. So 
Moving on to internal malignancy. Uh, there's really two manifestations in the skin that reflect internal malignancy. One is a direct extension of the cancer into the skin, so essentially a cutaneous metastasis. Uh, and the second is a perineoplastic phenomenon, which can appear before or with a malignancy, and that's really a remote effect of the neoplasm due to some, uh, various numbers of factors that can be secreted by cancers. So metastasis to the skin overall, if you look at uh, this as a skin finding, is relatively uncommon. And the incidence of cutaneous metastasis are directly related to the frequency of malignancies, and they're also related to the type of cancer, because certainly some forms of cancers preferably metastasize to the skin versus others. So you see here in this table the source of skin metastases, and they really reflect the frequency of uh, the cancers overall. So in men, uh, at least at the time that, that this was last published, lung was one of the most common, and in women it was breast with lung as a second. Uh, you can also see, uh, as you can see, colon, which is again a frequent neoplasm in men, but it's not as commonly seen in women. So metastases to the skin can occur via direct spread. They can also occur through spread through lymphatics and the bloodstream. Uh, and they frequently present as firm red to blue nodules. Uh, they oftentimes are quite adherent to the underlying skin and, uh, and can be rapidly growing and progressive. And the location is often related to the site of the primary neoplasm. In other words, breast metastases tend to occur on the chest wall. Again, the same is true of lung metastases, although due to lymphatic and or blood spread, they can also appear on the scalp. And the scalp is not an uncommon site for metastases. It's thought to be related to the vascularity of the scalp. Um, and then, obviously, ovarian cancer, you can frequently see frequently see on the abdominal wall. GU cancers can present in the abdominal wall or in the perianal areas. So here are some examples, and these are examples of skin metastases uh, from lung cancers in patients. And you can see here that this gentleman just presented with a rapidly enlarging subcutaneous nodule that was very, very firm. Again, here, these were a little redder because they're, they're a little bit more dermal, and they're, again, on the scalp. Lung, you oftentimes also see, like I said, on the chest. But this brings me to one of my central, central tenets in dermatology, which is an, an unidentified growing lump or bump that does not have a puncta cannot be considered a cyst, especially if it's persistently growing and rapidly growing, and it should be investigated. So be careful, because 99% of the time, that's exactly what it is, is a cyst or lipoma, but the few that you encounter like this uh, can be a problem. So always have a high level of suspicion. Palpate it. If it's firm, fixed, growing, biopsy it. Uh, this is a, an example of, a, again, a scalp metastasis of renal cell carcinoma. And you can see, in contrast to the others, this one is very red and friable. And there are three types of cancer that tend to produce these very vascular nodules. And they're renal cell, uh, hepatic, and thyroid skin metastases all tend to have a very vascular presentation. I think with this, that you, know, you would biopsy it pretty much. That wouldn't be a big question. Uh, skin metastasis from breast carcinoma, as I said, frequently occur in the breast. And as you can see here, this is an example of a very inflammatory metastasis. 
And then here you can also see uh, mammary Paget's disease. And what you see here, you know, you would think possibly of eczema, but what you see is that the border of the areola is not respected and it's kind of destroying this border of the areola. It also tends much more to be unilateral. So again, uh, you know, nipple dermatitis is certainly a more common entity, but have a low threshold for patients who are not improving, or if you see this loss of the normal border of the areola to biopsy these lesions. This is extra mammary pagets, and this can occur in and of itself as a primary neoplasm. It can also reflect metastasis of uh, uh, gastrourinary malignancy. So this requires biopsy as well as a workup if this see if this is an external spread of an internal neoplasm or a primary problem. Uh, occasionally you run across this as being misdiagnosed as intertrigo or candida or yeast. So again, if someone does not improve as they should, have a low threshold for biopsy. Lymphoma has a very specific look when it metastasizes to the skin. Uh, what you get is these very distinctive red-purple nodules, and they often take on a, a kidney-like shape, a reniform shape. Um, so this is an example here of that. So, there's a huge number of perineoplastic syndromes reported in dermatology, and I certainly will not go through all of them here. Uh, probably the two to be aware of we touched on earlier is acanthosis nigricans uh, that has predominantly been reported with gastric neoplasms, and the place to be a suspicious is if you have an adult onset in the absence of the typical uh, things that go along with acanthosis nigricans. Uh, including obesity and endocrine disorders. Also, the malignancy-associated acanthosis nigricans you can actually get around the mouth, and it tends to be much more extensive. Another is ichthyosis, which is, can be just extremely dry, dry, dry skin. And uh, this can occur in Hodgkin's disease and lymphoma, as well as uh, sarcoidosis and HIV. So an adult with new onset severe ichthyosis, fish-like scaling of the skin, that can be a potential problem, as well as some lipid-lowering agents. So here's an example of perineoplastic acanthosis nigricans, and I'd just like to draw your attention to the fact that this gentleman has these changes around the mouth and at the oral commissures, in addition to the typical distribution here. And that in the literature has been something that is, is known to point more towards a perineoplastic phenomenon. And here's an example of a fish-like scaling of acquired ichthyosis. Uh, and usually this is much more pronounced than just on the lower legs. It's something that really occurs all over versus just purely the ichthyosis associated with dry skin, which is most prominent on the lower legs. So, moving on here, uh, for the second half of our talk, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the manifestations of autoimmune connective tissue diseases in the skin. And this is something I, I added on, so I'll be happy to leave the slides with someone so you can get copies of these. So, lupus is uh, one of the, the most common of the autoimmune connective tissue diseases that has cutaneous manifestations. And actually, um, the Skin manifestations of lupus were actually first classified by a, name, a man named Dr. Gilliam, who was actually right here in Dallas at UT Southwestern. And uh, he actually came and described the various subsets of cutaneous lupus, as well as some of the autoantibody associations. So you guys are right in the, the heart of where this was developed. Um, 
So you can look at lupus-related skin disease as two different types. There's one that is specific to lupus. In other words, it's part of the spectrum of lupus. And then there's a whole slew of lupus nonspecific skin disease. And this is histologically nonspecific. An example of this is the alopecia that you can sometimes see in the setting of SLE. So this is Dr. Gilliam's classification, and we'll mainly concentrate on the lupus-specific skin disease, which is listed on the, the right up here. So this is basically broken down into acute cutaneous lupus, subacute cutaneous lupus, or chronic cutaneous lupus, which is we also call discoid lupus, is kind of the most common manifestations of that. Lupus nonspecific skin diseases that you can see are alopecia, uh, vasculitis, as well as a manifestation of pemphigus called pemphigus erythematosus, and there's, like I said, a slew other of others. So lupus-specific skin disease is actually pretty important because skin is second to joints as the most frequently affected organ in lupus, and the skin is actually the most common presenting complaint of someone with lupus. So really, in dermatology, we really can be at the front line in terms of diagnosing these patients uh, because they might come to our attention fairly early. So We'll start with the acute and go to the chronic. So acute cutaneous lupus is divided into two, localized and generalized. And localized ACLE, acute cutaneous lupus, is the malar rash, the butterfly rash that we all hear about. But this, if it becomes severe enough or the patient has a, a large-scale sun exposure, can actually become generalized, and then it's called photosensitive lupus dermatitis. And the epidemiology of this closely parallels systemic lupus. So the malar rash or butterfly rash is reported in 20 to 60% of patients with uh, SLE. It's more common in women. Um, questionably more common in Caucasians, perhaps due to the fact that we have less native sun exposure as Caucasians, and a younger age of disease onset. Generalized cutaneous lupus is a less common manifestation. And so what does this look like? It's localized confluence, symmetrical erythema, and edema over the malar eminences. The important thing with this is this is hugely exacerbated by sunlight. And so it's photo distributed, which means where you throw a shadow from your nose, it spares. It spares the folds here. You throw a shadow from your bones here, so it spares right underneath the eyes. And if it extends down into the neck, it'll spare right underneath the chin as well. And you can see this patient also has lesions extending down to the V of her neck. Here's another example. And again, we can see here she has this sparing right under her, her, uh, her eyes on the lower eyelid skin, this sparing in the nasal creases, again, where her nose throws a shadow, and then again, where you have shadows on the face. And this can almost become edematous in nature, so it almost has a, a puffiness to it. An important thing, though, is it lacks pustules like rosacea, uh, and rosacea tends to also extend much more onto the glabella and have a very central facial distribution and not have quite this photo-exacerbated look. Here's an example of a gentleman, which is not commonly seen since this is such a female predominant disease, but you can see here it can become quite, quite severe, uh, as you see here. 
So this is an example of the generalized uh, acute cutaneous lupus, and you can see this patient has a very widespread eruption. It's very photo-distributed. She actually went out to see a car race uh, prior to this and was wearing a tank top. So you can see it's highly photo-distributed, um, and it tends to spare the knuckles, which will be important when we get to dermatomyositis. But this tends to be very symptomatic for patients. It burns like crazy, and you can see here her skin is markedly red and inflamed and edematous, and she even has some serous crusting here. And this is an example of her hands, and you can see here how neatly uh, cutaneous lupus tends to spare the knuckles. You can also uh, get a superficial ulcerations in the mouth and nasal mucosa, and as you might recall, that's actually one of the, uh, the uh, diagnostic, the 11 diagnostic criteria for systemic lupus are oral ulcerations. And it's usually this posterior aspect of the hard palate that is commonly affected frequently in the border between the hard and soft palate. Oftentimes, these lesions are relatively asymptomatic, and so you really have to go looking for them. So acute cutaneous lupus, of the forms of cutaneous lupus, is the most photosensitive. And I think we saw in the patients, as you recall before, how, how very much it is distributed according to sun exposure. And it's very transient. Interestingly, it can wax and wane over the course of hours. And post-inflammatory pigmentary change is prominent in patients who have darkly pigmented skin. And you can see an example here. This can be very long-lasting and, and really problematical for the patients, even after after the acute eruption goes away. So ACLA and systemic lupus. Um, so this is not greatly investigated, but the general assumption is that it parallels systemic disease. So in other words, as your, as your systemic lupus flares, oftentimes the skin lupus flares. And patients with this manifestation almost always will meet criteria to have systemic lupus. Uh, they oftentimes have other markers of systemic lupus, such as anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies when present are elevated and low complement, and they tend to be at higher risk for nephritis and other severe lupus complications. So this is an important thing uh, to be aware of and watch because you can really diagnose these patients early in their disease course, and usually a biopsy will help you do that. The differential for localized includes the biggest things you see are rosacea. Uh, but again, you know, look for the photosensitivity. Look for pustules, which will point you towards rosacea. Uh, and then ask the patient how they're feeling. People with a uh, you know, flare of their systemic lupus rarely feel very well. They will have usually at least some fever or malaise or fatigue or just don't feel right. And look for ulcers in the mouth and other manifestations. I think less common is seborrheic dermatitis. We'll talk about how it differs from dermatomyositis, and then contact dermatitis is another one. Generalized acute cutaneous lupus, drug hypersensitivity reactions, erythema multiforme, as well as uh, phototoxic eruptions or photoallergic eruptions are all in the differential. Uh, and here we have an example of someone with uh, rosacea. So management, uh, photo protection is essential. Uh, this should include very uh, high uh, physical blocking sunscreens as well as sun protective clothing, uh, topical steroids, anti-malarials uh, such as hydroxychloroquine and quinacrine, and generally requires systemic immunosuppressive agents for management of the systemic disease. So certainly once you identify one of these people, referral to a rheumatologist is appropriate.
Subacute cutaneous lupus was actually uh, first described and classified by Dr. Gilliam. And uh, it is an immunogenetically distinct lupus subset marked by distinctive skin lesions as well as a distinctive antibody profile. Uh, it was initially described by this guy here prior to Dr. Gilliam as ANA negative lupus. And the reason for that is these patients usually have anti-Rho and LA antibodies. And many, many years ago when they used uh, animal substrates to do ANA testing, they actually, Rho and LA antibodies don't react to the animal substrates. So these patients actually were called ANA negative lupus. Today, almost all laboratories usually use HEP2 cells, which are human-derived, or ELISA testing. So the phenomenon of negative ANA lupus is almost non-existent now. And like I said, this specific autoantibody profile was, was uh, the association made by Dr. Gilliam. And so SCLE occurs in about 7 to 27% of patients who meet criteria for having uh, systemic lupus. Uh, the initial patient cohort described by Dr. Gilliam was predominantly female, uh, predominantly Caucasian, and, middle, and young middle-aged, I'll say, mean age of 43.3 years. And subsequent studies have revealed that these demographic characteristics uh, seem to be true across different groups of patients. There's two variants of this, psoriasiform and annular. Uh, these patients tend to be photosensitive because the presence of Rho and Law antibodies is a marker for photosensitivity. So they also tend to be exacerbated by sunlight. And the distribution of this is classic. It occurs in sun-exposed areas in what is called a V-shaped distribution on the trunk. So let's look at some examples here. So the squamous or psoriasiform lesions uh, are about half of these patients, and then these are erythematous papules that evolve into scaly plaques, as you see pictured here. And these photos are actually uh, from Dr. Sondheimer, who took over from Dr. Gilliam, and so these were some of the original patients that Gilliam described, which I think is kind of cool, but I'm nerdy like that. So, okay, so this is the second manifestation, and these are annular or polycyclic plaques. So you can see the morphology is a bit different here. One of the things that's very distinctive about these lesions is that they tend to, as they kind of uh, improve in the center, they have this central gray type color. And depending on which patient you look at, it can look gray, or in this case, just a little bit off in pigment. And it sometimes looks a little bit atrophic and telangiectatic, but it doesn't truly scar. Um, so the a good number of these patients actually may develop acute cutaneous lupus. They can also develop classic chronic cutaneous lupus or DLE lesions, so they can kind of go in both directions. Um, one of the things, though, is when these patients do get systemic lupus, they tend to have a much milder course than, for example, the patients we just talked about with the Malar rash. So, uh, again, only of the ones that meet the criteria for lupus, only 10% develop severe SLE. So um, again here, but they can develop all the, the different manifestations that you see here of lupus. And this is uh, the laboratory manifestations, and you can see 
SLE patients, almost 100%, I would say it's more like 99% personally, are going to be ANA positive. People with SCLE, it's about 60%. But what you can see here is the predominant antibody is going to be anti-Rho. Uh, this is also called SSA antibody. And so when you order this, what will happen is if they have a positive ANA and you order extractable nuclear antigens, this will include the anti-Rho and LA. So what you'll see is usually the speckled ANA pattern, which goes with extractable nuclear antigens. And then you'll want to check for this when you're suspicious, which would be encompassed in extractable nuclear antigen testing. As you can see here, double-stranded DNA is a very specific marker for systemic lupus, and uh, usually the more the acute cutaneous lupus. And this will actually, the titers correlate with disease activity. And as you see here, anti-Smith is very specific, again, for systemic lupus, not really present in SCLE. And anticardiolipin with the associating hypercoagulable state is much more prominent in lupus. So the differential diagnosis, well, it's papulosquamous. So a big one is psoriasis, also tinea, numular eczema, and a number of other kind of classic papulosquamous disorders. But these tend uh, to be different in that they are not usually as photosensitive. And remember that inverted V, and what that essentially means is if you look at someone's back with SCLE, you can draw kind of this V shape to it. So most of the lesions will be up on the shoulders and they'll taper out lower on the back. So here is an example of uh, some items in the differential diagnosis. So we have uh, tinea incognito, psoriasis, and this is tinea fasciae, also tinea incognito. So management. Uh, so at diagnosis, it's important to uh, evaluate these patients for underlying systemic lupus photoprotection with high SPF, a physical blocking sunscreens, as well as uh, hats and other photoprotective gear, topical corticosteroids, and again, anti-malarials. Uh, some of these patients do fail this and go on to need top, uh, systemic immunosuppressives. I would say in contrast to the other group of patients, almost all these patients can be managed by medical dermatologists. Um, and so uh, they can usually be referred if you have a center nearby or or if you have someone that you can work with, or some of you, I'm sure, have experience in, in managing these patients yourselves. Just to be aware, and this is something I just flew back this morning from the American College of Rheumatology meeting, and drug-induced SCLE is a big phenomenon, and the place to really look for this is in patients who are older, um, and Dr. Sondheimer had a really nice presentation about this, but almost all of the causative agents are uh, antihypertensives, but the list is growing constantly. And the other one that seems to be quite frequent is Lamisil, but big ones are the antihypertensives. And so just be sure when you run across one of these patients, at least let it cross your mind that it might be drug-induced. And typically, unlike other drug-induced phenomenon, this oftentimes has a lag time of several months. So it might be something they've been on for, for several months, and it can often take uh, a couple of months to resolve thereafter. So the thinking was, at least I just heard about this uh, this weekend, is that perhaps these patients, it's not truly really drug-induced, but it's being unmasked by the drug. Because also, coincidentally, most of these drugs are photosensitizers. So perhaps by photosensitizing patients with a predisposition, we're unmasking their underlying tendency towards the disease. 
So entirely kind of almost in a different ballpark is chronic cutaneous lupus. And this is a very poorly studied disease. And my, my colleague at Southwestern, Dr. Chong, is actually uh, trying to collect these patients and, and learn more about them. But the most common manifestation you run across is this entity called discoid lupus. And uh, it has a number of other manifestations that have been reported as well. So the interesting thing is if you take people with systemic lupus and follow them over time, 15 to 30 percent, it varies depending on what you read, will develop a discoid lupus lesion, usually around the first few years after their diagnosis. But on the flip side, if you take people with just discoid lupus lesions, only 5 to 10 percent of them will actually have SLE. So really in this case, in contrast to the ones we talked about before, very few of these people actually have have systemic lupus. Um, this has a young age of onset, usually 20 to 40 years. There's a slight female predominance, but it is not quite as strong as with the other forms that we saw, and possibly might be more prevalent in African Americans, but really good population studies are still lacking in this disease. The cutaneous manifestations are divided into localized above the neck and generalized below the neck. And this is actually important because the prognosis depends on the distribution. Generalized below the neck tends to have uh, systemic lupus accompanying it a little bit more frequently and be a little harder to treat. It has a very characteristic distribution. And the main thing is it's the scalp, uh, the face, and the conchal bowls of the ears. There's really only a few skin disorders that present with predominant lesions in the conchal bowls of the ears. And discoid lupus is probably the biggest. The second I've seen, and can be confused with this, is sarcoidosis in the skin. And then, of course, seborrheic dermatitis and psoriasis. Uh, so discoid cutaneous lupus begin as flat, well-demarcated red-purple plaques with scale. And then they evolve into coin-shaped lesions, thus the discoid in their name, uh, with scale that extends into the hair follicles. So if you look at these closely, you can actually see what they call carpet tacking, which is the scale in the hair follicles. And so this is an example of someone with fairly acute lesions. They can appear quite juicy, and you can see this uh, facial predisposition, although this is the least photosensitive form of cutaneous lupus. Over the long term, the lesions progress at the periphery and scar centrally. And this is in direct contrast. Remember, I pointed out to you the SCLE lesions that are hypopigmented are gray in the center, but they don't truly scar. These lesions untreated truly scar. Um, and it can cause, obviously, on the scalp, if you have this, you have a lot of scarring alopecia. But this is, is kind of absolutely the classic look for this disease. I think it's, it's harder to recognize when you get just an isolated papula or plaque like this, which is sometimes how it starts. And here you can see a patient who has extremely extensive disease. This is a good example of the generalized form below the neck. And you can see just how, I think the name is great. I mean, these really look discoid to me. And this uh, gentleman actually did have severe systemic lupus as well. And here's another example. Uh, this is his back. And you can actually very rarely see this. This is a patient, it can kebnerize, so go to areas of skin trauma. It actually went to this patient's uh, hysterectomy scar here. 
and she had typical lesions as well as the head and, on the head and neck. I brought this up because a lot of the photos you see for this are in more darkly pigmented patients, and it can look very different in light uh, uh, in lighter skin patients. It has a much redder look, and the pigmentary change is much less prominent, and also just because of the lack of contrast, the, the scarring in the center is less prominent. And this is an example of discoid lupus lesions underlying lupus profundus, which is essentially inflammation in the fat related to lupus. It likes the proximal arms and breasts can be severely affected by this. If you biopsy this, you would actually see the classic pathology of discoid lupus lesions, but underneath here you would get uh, massive inflammation of the fatty tissues as well. This is an example of chilblains lupus, which frequently occurs on the fingers and toes. And interestingly, if biopsied shows the pathological changes of discoid lupus. It can also have uh, uh, oral manifestations in about a quarter of the patients. And uh, you can see here, uh, again, you have these erosions uh, in the palate area. And you can also see them around the eye. This was a patient I followed, a young woman. And this is problematical because if this scars, you can get a lot of problems with function of the eyelids. And you can also see it in the nose, as you see here. So like I said, these groups of patients, the majority of them do not have systemic lupus. And these are the risk factors, at least for as far as we know, for uh, systemic lupus. The generalized distribution, uh, uh, periungal nail fold telangiectasia, Renaud's, and uh, other cutaneous manifestations of lupus. Uh, Again, also, a fair number of these people do have uh, a decreased white count, so a very mild leukopenia, but other kind of uh, laboratory manifestations of SLE should also put you uh, uh, on high suspicion that these patients will develop uh, systemic lupus. So generally what we do with these patients when they first come in is we do a good, really good review of systems, look them over, and do, do just some basic labs to get an idea of their CBC, uh, their ANA, their ESR, CRPs, and complement levels just to see if there's anything that looks awry. Um, and then if not, we follow them closely. Usually they'll develop systemic lupus within the first few years of the development of the discoid lesions. And even so, even if they don't meet criteria for systemic lupus, they oftentimes have low titer ANAs. Uh, but they don't have lupus-specific ANAs, and they don't have Rho and Law antibodies usually. So again, the differential here includes a number of disorders uh, that we've mentioned previously. This is, again, an example of someone with uh, tinea that was treated with topical steroids. And I've actually seen this co-occur in people with discoid lupus because they tend to use a lot of topical steroids. Uh, again, here, tinea facei. Uh, treated with steroids and coexisting in a patient with discoid lupus as well. So that I've seen on several occasions also on the scalp. Uh, this is an example of a discoid lesion that's become quite hyperkeratotic. So I think here you would certainly think of an actinic keratosis if there were just a few present. Uh, so as I said, you uh, look at systemic involvement, sun protection, uh, is important here. Topical treatment, if few lesions, they can usually respond well to intralesional triamcinolone, and you want to use a more potent topical steroid. And then you move on to your anti-malarials of typically in the United States hydroxychloroquine, which usually works out to be 200 to 200 a day to 200 BID 
for most adults. So the biggest thing, though, is that people you might be following for a long time with cutaneous lupus can get other skin problems. So uh, here you have 84 people with systemic lupus, and the majority of them had dermatoses not attributable to their lupus itself. And there's a, a law that Dr. Sonheimer, who works a lot in this, says that once you're diagnosed with lupus, everything you have from there on out will be attributed to your lupus, and you just need to be aware that's not always the case. So we'll end up with dermatomyositis, and I think dermatomyositis is important to discuss because it has some contrasts with uh, cutaneous lupus. So dermatomyositis is a combination of distinctive skin findings with an idiopathic inflammatory myopathy. Um, and there is also an amyopathic variant described in which the patients have the classic skin findings but no clinically appreciable muscle disease or elevation of their muscle enzymes, although it's frequently thought these patients might have subclinical muscle involvement. So by definition, it's dermatomyositis. So 100% of these patients will have the skin lesions, and oftentimes the skin lesions can precede the muscle disease uh, from even months to years. And it can also occur simultaneously. And sometimes, even in people with dermatomyositis, their skin can flare and their muscle disease can be quiescent. So it takes on any number of forms. Amyopathic dermatomyositis is defined as biopsy-confirmed classical cutaneous manifestations of dermatomyositis without muscle weakness, normal muscle enzymes for two years or longer, give or take. Um, and there are recently uh, some studies that show that this might actually have a unique autoantibody profile, but at, to date, these are only available for research purposes. So the Dermatomyositis skin lesions are subdivided into pathognomonic lesions. So uh, the pathognomonic lesions include Gotron's papules, which are violaceous papules over the dorsolateral aspect of the interphalangeal joints and or MCP. And remember, when we talked about acute cutaneous lupus, it spares the knuckle. So that's the classic distinction between these two entities, which is important to remember because actually if you biopsy these, they look very similar under the microscope and you can't always distinguish it, so you really have to use your clinical clues to distinguish them. Gotrin's sign is symmetrical violaceous erythema overlying the dorsal aspect of the, the hand joints as well as at the elbows and the knees. So here's an example of Gotron's papules uh, in this patient over the knuckle, and the other thing just coincidentally caught in the shot is these uh, dilated uh, nail fold capillaries, which are also commonly seen uh, in dermatomyositis as well as scleroderma and a little less commonly in lupus. And here again, a little further away, you can see the Gotron's papules, and they have this violaceous look to them. And this patient also has ragged cuticles, which is something that is associated with dermatomyositis as well. And you can even see here grossly the dilated capillary loops. And here you see Gotron's sign, this violaceous erythema present over the elbows. And here again. And then this is a more florid example of the disease. And you can see here, again, it goes right over the knuckles. And remember our acute cutaneous lupus, uh, where it very neatly spared the knuckles. Uh, and you can see here that this extends up uh, over the forearms as well. And so this can look quite papulosquamous when it becomes diffuse. 
uh, characteristic skin lesions of dermatomyositis include periorbital erythema, which is called a heliotrope rash. It looks like someone wearing really bright purple uh, um, eyeshadow. And this can also appear as a facial edema and periorbital edema. And uh, we talked about the periungal telangiectasia with dystrophic cuticles, and then the symmetrical violaceous erythema overlying the extensor tendon sheaths, arms, deltoids, posterior shoulders, and neck. Another thing that distinguishes this disease from lupus is that it oftentimes starts at the back of the head and the occiput and comes down over the shoulders. So a lot of these people have a very itchy scalp, and it's a very itchy disease, which cutaneous lupus tends to be less so. So here we have an example of the heliotrope erythema of the eyelids. And here, a typical, very typical example, you see the heliotrope erythema of the eyelids, uh, as well as this involvement of the V of the neck. These patients also frequently have a lot of telangiectasia and also poikilodermatous change. And here you can see the very uh, flagrant, very obvious involvement of the nail folds here. And here's a good example, again, of the Gotron's papules and the tendon streaking and the ragged cuticles. So there's also a number of compatible skin lesions of dermatomyositis, and these include the poikiloderma, which I talked about, which incorporates hypo, hyperpigmentation, atrophy, and telangiectasia over the, the posterior shoulders, and this is called a shawl sign. Uh, calcinosis cutis also occurs, and it's more common in children. This can also appear on the thighs, and is called the holster sign, FYI. So uh, here, again, another example of perhaps a more poikilodermatous lesion. And this is a close-up of poikiloderma. Hopefully you can appreciate the hypo-hyperpigmentation and telangiectasias and atrophy. And this is an example of the holster sign over the thighs. And here's an example of the shawl sign. And you can see this patient is also Cushingoid from her longtime steroid use for her muscle disease. So like I said, itchy. Uh, the neck, photo exacerbated, it tends to be progressive over time. I've seen it confused with psoriasis, uh, and it can't be a reliable gauge of systemic disease activity. So, and here's an example of the scalp involvement. Mechanics hands is a specific type of dermatomyositis, and this is actually associated with this thing called antisynthetase antibodies, which cause interstitial lung disease. And this is where it was first described. And what you get is, is these changes that occur right here in the thumb and index finger. And we'll just skip some of this. So this has a big differential. Uh, and cutaneous lupus is one of the big ones that plays in it, as well as uh, photosensitive, other photosensitive disorders. Contact dermatitis, lichen planus. So again, sun protection, uh, moisturizers, antipruritics, antimalarials, not as responsive as cutaneous lupus. If they have muscle disease, the therapy of choice is high-dose steroids and uh, usually methotrexate and then mycophenolate mofetil. So when you see this, probably evaluation for muscle disease and referral to rheumatology. So I'll end there. Thank you.